Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. During the recent United States Grand Prix weekend, there was a very, very important presentation because the 2021 regulations for Formula One and much vaunted reboots were revealed, having been signed off by the FIA's World Motorsport Council. We didn't really get into this in our Monday post-race podcast, but we thought it would be really good to, to delve into the rules now that we've had time to digest and understand them and see what some of the reactions been to really understand whether the 2021 project is going to be a success based on what we've seen. I'm joined by Jake Boxall-Legg, our technical expert and uh, resident baseball cap enthusiast. Uh, so obviously this this has been great for you. This is this is uh this is uh delightful stuff for you to be uh to be wading through. Yeah, absolutely. And the thing is, I was really, really worried that once all of the teams had sort of put their four eggs in and everyone sort of got involved, I was worried that these 2021 regulations would be quite watered down. But ultimately, it seems to be very much similar to F1's sort of undulterated vision, really. So it's really nice to see um, the extent that F1 wanted it to be, really. Yeah, very, very much so. And uh Obviously, they do. They prepared some graphics, and in fact, some of the teams have been doing that as well. And there was a there was a scale model of the car that was uh, in the presentation. In fact, I saw them uh, on Sunday night in the uh, press conference room uh, hauling that out. It's a heavy uh, heavy piece of kit, have to say. Um, so the cars the cars look quite good, but obviously, there, there's several key objectives to the 21 regulations. One of them is they want to improve the raceability. So. In particular, that means being able to run closer. They've tried to address the uh, the, the, the playing field financially with the, the new financial regulations. So previously, we had two pillars of the regulations, which is the technical regulations and the sporting regulations. Now, there's a nice document, which I have in front of me here, called the financial regulations, which is part of it. So it, it's all about trying to make Formula One more competitive, better show, better for fans, and for it also to be financially sustainable for the teams. So I, I think probably we should delve into the technical side first. So I was going to say, what's your first impression? But you've had plenty of time to, to move beyond that. So what's your your consolidated, well-reasoned impression of the of the technical rules, the chassis and aero rules that have driven these uh, this set of, this set of technical regulations? So it's very, very much focused on getting rid of that that dirty air that everybody talks about. It's talked about as this silver bullet. We get rid of that and we make the racing much closer. And obviously it's a much more nuanced argument than that. But Formula One has taken that step to stopping all of this turbulent wake shed off of cars that, you know, it's, it's impossible to get rid of it. It's physically impossible to get rid of it. 
all. But ultimately, there has been this step to reduce that because once a car is following in the current climate, um, the FIA produced and F1 produced a, a graphic to suggest that it loses about 45% of its overall downforce which is a huge amount. It means that these cars can't follow, especially in sort of medium to high-speed corners. That's where they they lose out the most. So by changing this this aero philosophy, um, by shifting the, the bulk of the downforce being produced by the floor rather than the top of the car, that's going to have a huge effect on that because there's not all of this, this turbulent wake shared. It's things, it's airflow going under the floor being kicked up by the diffuser slash venturi tunnels as they will be now and being directed quite far upwards uh behind the car so sort of, sort of like a really really tall rooster tail if you like and that ensures that there's not all of this this dirty air following behind the car and it means that the following car's aerodynamics isn't as reduced um it means that the front wing you know it's not a sensitive either anyway so yeah there's been this huge scale change um i'm choosing my words quite carefully because i'm you know i don't want to get my hopes up too much but this this does look like a really huge step in the right direction much as 2017 was very much a step in in the wrong direction almost yeah so of course well they've revisited and talked about the 2017 regulations and they said that these were just a big mistake because they became obsessed with this 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 lap time improvement target so it became all about making the cars more downforce etc they did hit that target but it was completely the wrong target <laughs> so this the, the idea is that this is the correct set of objectives i think we can agree the objectives are correct aren't they yeah absolutely um well back in 2017 using that as a the example of how not to do regulations they were enticed by this sort of siren song of look you can do this and have faster lap times and start smashing records and that's great uh, if, you know, you like things on paper. But when it comes to watching an actual race, watching 20 of the world's most skillful drivers battle out on a track, if the cars are fast but can't overtake, what's the point? Um, so these new regulations are trying to reduce the, uh, redress the balance in that direction. The cars will be slower as a result. 3 to 3.5 seconds, I think, is what people have said. But... Ultimately, you know, that doesn't matter. People aren't going to be complaining that the cars are too slow if, you know, everybody's racing closely and the action is, you know, similar to what we see in perhaps IndyCar or something like that rather than current Formula One. You referenced the uh, that, that graph that they did that showed the, the downforce level that you had at certain car lengths and, you know, one car length. Uh, currently, you're, down, you're basically 55% of your downforce. The mooted 21 regs are supposedly 86% of your downforce at one car length. Now, I'm highly suspicious about that figure. I mean, I'm sure it's correctly researched, and that is correct for what the models they've got. But with the you know, the thousands of uh, aerodynamicists who are thrown at, uh, at this problem, they are going to be able to manipulate the airflow with greater complexity, perhaps, than has been suggested. So my suspicion is that it might almost be a splitting the difference between that 86% and that 55% figure by the time we get get going racing. But what do you think? Do you think I'm being unduly pessimistic when it comes to that? No, I think it's a fair thing to say, especially because, you know, the teams haven't had the chance to get their mitts on it yet. And despite all of the best efforts of Formula One and the FIA to try and prescribe as many things as possible, the teams will still have a say in all of this and they'll come up with different shapes that formula one hasn't prepared for yet so if it, it would probably be uh probably be closer to 65 70 percent i would imagine if we're being really pessimistic here um hopefully it's around 70 75 percent i think that would be that would be successful um because currently you know you probably need one or two seconds a lap faster than the car in front to mount a serious challenge and mount an overtake so something like that, that will bring it closer to, you know, half a second, a second, which would be much better for, for closer racing in reality. Well, if these rules get it down to that sort of level, that would be a, a big difference. But we should point out that 
the only way to eliminate this problem is to run the cars in a vacuum, which obviously isn't going to happen. So when you've got a car moving through the air, influencing it, manipulating it, the effect will always exist and impact the racing, won't it? You can't kind of wish it out of existence. So we do have to keep expectations in check. Yeah, absolutely not. Um, you know, this is, we're talking about a physical property of air. It exists. Uh, you can't stop it from having its physical properties unless, as you say, you run it in a vacuum. Um, and in reality, that's never going to happen. And even if it did, uh, <laughs> how would the cars even work? Um, but on planet Earth, uh, we have air. Um, that is the situation, of course. As you say, you can mitigate it. But I think the problem is as well that because when these aerodynamicists are producing a car, they do so to work in normal laminar air. Now, in things like wind tunnels and CFDs, you can add turbulence models and you can simulate for turbulence. But ultimately, at the end of the day, you can't simulate for every single car that you're driving behind, every single weather condition, every single permutation. You can't design for that. Um so ultimately, it's a fact of life. You can't stop dirty air. Um, you can shrink it and you can stack the odds in your favour in it a little bit. But yeah, I think it's a fact of life. Uh, everyone realised that and uh, have tried to work around it, really. And of course, we should say, as well as reducing wake, the idea is that by simplifying the cars, and obviously the barge boards have been uh, been pretty much laid waste to by these these regulations. And if you look at the barge board on a Formula One car now, I mean, bargeboard as a phrase is wholly inadequate, really, isn't it? They're remarkable, multi-component pieces of aerodynamic bafflement, ultimately, if you look at them, loads of different shapes and, and profiles, and they're very powerful, the bargeboards, but that's sort of being eliminated. So the idea is that by making the aero simpler and less uh, less less critical, therefore it's easier for the smaller teams who don't have the depth of resource and analysis, etc., to be at a similar level to the bigger team. So do you think do you think that follows with these rules that it will be easier the big teams will always have an advantage because they can do more and despite the cost cap which we'll get on to later there will be there will be still the haves and the the have lesses should we say rather than the the have nots but do you think that this is the right kind of direction to achieve that objective in terms of closing things up yeah absolutely i mean the restrictions are such that um i mean obviously air aerodynamicists and engineers are still going to find ways around things that's that's what they do but ultimately with a smaller box to play in um everything is going to be tighter together um but then again there is there is the the caveat that with aero restrictions and stuff like that and with the amount that teams can develop by in the future if someone steals a march on the rest of the field it is going to ultimately be closer uh, harder to rein them in uh, or harder to catch up to them, rather. Um, but it is definitely a step in the right direction, as you say. I'm sure we'll discuss the cost cap and that Im- those implications. And having restricted aerodynamic development does, you know, work in hand in hand with that. So it's going to be really, really interesting to see just how much it closes up by, really. And and kind of as a a tangent to that, obviously they also talked about the way that this will be policed in terms of the area legality they're going to take scans and they're going to use a um a, a kind of coordinate system to uh to monitor the cars and to and to measure them and check they're all legal to within these arrow rules which is just a slight change in the way they've uh they've done it now one thing they did in the re- in the in the presentation is they showed a few different versions of uh of cars and said well there's been concerns about differentiation but look here's two different versions of the cars to the same rules and they're different now whether you, whether they're really different to the untrained eye is another matter, um, because you want to look, kind of when you're talking about differentiation, you probably want them to be dramatically different. But with rules these restrictive, is there a risk that that they will almost converge immediately on the on the correct solution? Because just because you can do certain things under the rules, doesn't mean it's sensible to to do it. I think. Well, I think that's where some of the restrictions come into play. Um, in that people are going to opt for different designs ultimately, um, and then it's going to be it's going to take longer for that convergence to happen if it does. But if you look at the current cast of cars now, anyway, you know they don't look dissimilar. There's you can't. I'm sure 
as was Ross Bourne uh, once suggested, I think it was Ross Bourne, it was either him or Pat Simmons suggested that uh, the F1 design, in-house design team painted all the cars black and had a bit of a hard time trying to realise which car was which. Um, ultimately, cars do look similar and I don't think that any suggestion that, oh, they're all going to end up looking the same holds too much water because it's it's the kind of the case already anyway. Um, so yeah, there will it will be restricted, and yeah, there'll be only so much teams can do. And will we get to twenty twenty four, twenty twenty five, and everybody's got the same car? I don't know. Um, but ultimately, if the racing is good on track, I don't think people are going to complain too much. Yeah, that's fair, and and you know, it's not the nineteen seventies anymore, and you know, the rules are the same for for every team. The laws of physics are the same for every team. So it stands to reason that they're going to come up with relatively similar interpretations, doesn't it? That's that's just that's just the way science works, effectively, and they will converge uh, over time. But you know, that there is the chance for differences with the nose and the front wing, the side pods, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But I, I guess the really important and encouraging thing, coming back to the whole thing of following, is the fact they have gone more ground effect. That that's something that a lot of people have called for. And seems to be a logical way of doing it. Although it'll be interesting to see how robust that proves to be once uh, Formula One teams start refining it to the end. Yeah, it's going to be interesting because it's a whole new vein of development for everybody. It's not something that these people will have experienced um, unless they've got designers that have remained from the early eighties. And even then, these ground effects are in a completely different sort of way uh, compared to what they were in the eighties when it was you know, big side pods and sliding skirts. These are different. They're a very different breed. And it's something new for everybody to get their teeth into. I quite like that. I quite like the idea of Formula One ditching an established format that everybody has sort of milked for all it's worth. And now they have to do something completely different. And maybe one team will steal a march on their ground effects compared to somebody else. We don't know. Um, But... Ultimately, it, it it is a rich form, rich vein of development. Um, it should be very, very interesting to see who does what. Obviously, it's going to be quite difficult to talk about because unless you know you see a car on the back of a truck or upside down or something, which we hope we don't, it's going to be quite hard to talk about when we're doing our post-race tech reviews or whatever. It's going to be difficult to say, oh, they've got a new fin on the on on the floor. Uh, we can't see it, but it, it's there. It's there. So, from that perspective, uh, it, I'll I'll certainly struggle. But it should be really interesting for the teams to to get their heads around. Now, another thing that has been talked about at length, and a few drivers expressed concerns, ongoing concerns about this, is the weight. The minimum weight of the car is rising again. Currently, it's 743 kilos going up to 768, which is, you know, partly a consequence of the going to the 18-inch the wheel rims, which is something that's been planned for quite uh, quite some time. And there's an increase in the minimum weight of the engine. And some of the prescribed components, as they call it, are uh, increase the weight because obviously you're having to, um, to be built to a, a certain spec. Now, I, I completely agree that it's a shame the cars have got so heavy, but other than the wheel rims... I don't really see any way to to avoid them being as uh, as, no, as heavy it's as they are. Just it is what it is, uh, and all, as perhaps Kimi Räikkönen might say, it is what it is, and it's the same for everybody. So why complain about it? Well, it should be noted that the the weight increase it's it's an emergent property of the regulations. It's not like they set the weight and said, "Yeah, we'll make it heavy." It's a consequence, and like you say, side impact structures, the halo, these kinds of things, and that the power unit packages are heavy. That's that's always been the case in this era but the thing with safety stuff I always say is safety equipment is quite boring until you see Fernando Alonso trying to land on Charles Leclerc's head at Spa last year or something like that so yeah I, th- I think it's uh, it's a necessary evil should we say much as I I do think and I watch trackside at every race and have done for a long time and you can see a difference that that sharpness that's uh, that lightness, that lightning fast turning isn't quite there these days that was there, say, 10, 12 years ago, should we say. But uh, yeah, th- there are reasons for that. And if, th- if there's reasons for it, that's uh, that's okay. Uh, 
We should briefly mention the power units. There's not actually a great deal of change there. There was originally, of course, when they were talking about these regs, talk about getting rid of the MGUH, and actually all the manufacturers say, well, we've developed this and we quite like it, so we'd like to keep it. So basically, they are the same. A few little uh, tweaks for cost saving, etc. They're going to a standardised fuel pump, for example. The fuel... Um, they're going from 10% uh, to 20% on uh, on biomass for increased renewables as part of their sustainability. And there's, there's a longer kind of roadmap for sustainability to uh, to work on that. So that's sort of a, mi- a minor point. Uh, gearboxes and brakes also. There's a few interesting things. Suspension as well. There's a few interesting areas that perhaps haven't been talked about as much as they should be there, haven't they? So gearbox is quite an interesting one. Um, gearboxes will eventually be frozen in specification from 2021 to the end of 2025. Um, so basically that's a huge amount of cost saving there because there's quite a lot of costs sunk in R&D and things like that. Um, so ultimately there will be one upgrade allowed to the specification in that time. So over that five-year span, teams can make uh, one upgrade to the specification. I don't know what that entails, how much of the gearbox you can change, whether it's a small thing or a big thing. Um, So there's quite a lot in that. Um, And then there's the suspension changes as well. Um, So Formula One is going to simplify, make the suspension a little bit cheaper by only really permitting like a spring damper setup. Uh, so those really expensive inerters or heave springs or whatever they're called these days, uh, they're going to be gone, which is quite an interesting one. Um, well, that's something that we'll have to, uh, get Gary Anderson's opinion on, uh, I think at some point, because he knows a lot about these things a lot more than I do, certainly. Um, and then you've got the things that are a legacy of changes to the wheel, uh, assembly as well so the suspension uprights must now be solely included within the wheel assembly uh, so you don't get those weird little extra mounting points that Mercedes pioneered and a few teams are using now so there's quite a few changes in that particular area as well uh, from a vehicle dynamic standpoint so that's going to be interesting to see how teams get on top of that uh, it's probably going to play in with a little bit with the ground effects as well um in the suspension sort of ethos is going to have to change a little bit because they want to work those ground effects a lot more they don't need to run as much rake as they perhaps would in the past so a sort of rethink in that regard yeah uh, i think that's a uh, a, a good move but it, it's interesting because suspension on formula one cars isn't talked about as much as it should be and it's it's almost a second order thing, but it will to make the aero work on a Formula One car as well as possible. You need to keep the, the the kind of mechanical platform very, very, very well controlled, and there's a huge amount of gain in that. And I think actually, when it comes to this big gap we see between the big three and the rest, I think a big part of that actually is some of the trickery being done with the suspension to to kind of the, the way you're able to hold the car and have the car poised on track to make it work. It unlocks a, a whole next level of uh, of development if you can. Uh, if you can do that. So some of the, the restrictions on the kinematics of that will uh, potentially uh, be helpful. But I suspect that could be quite a big point of differentiation given that they're having to make some uh, significant changes. And also brakes, they're going to be li- they're going to be limited for the first time, aren't they, with grid penalties for exceeding. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so that is a new addition. Um, that's quite an interesting one as well because brakes are going to be standardised. Uh, so... In theory, it should last one race weekend if everything has been tested correctly. Uh, Obviously, if teams have to change because they've had an accident or something, then that's going to sort of cause a few problems, cause a a little bit of consternation. Uh, I understand the need for it. I wonder about the safety ramifications of that, especially, you know, we've literally just had a race where Kevin Magnussen's brake failed exploded was the word he used yeah so it's that's an interesting one i'm not sure about that one um penalties for brake discs and pads uh obviously we'll see how it plays out but i don't know if i, I don't know if i personally like that one too much uh, there's also some tweaks to the the chassis dimensions to try and make it better to accommodate some of the bigger drivers some changes to the energy absorption of the nose so the nose will be uh, a little bit uh, a little bit longer and then, then there's a whole kind of network of 
components related to that. There's the listed components, which exist currently, which is the the things you have to make yourself. You have to own the IP in order to qualify as a constructor, which which is what you need to do. And then there's standard supply components, prescribed design components, and transferable components. There's going to be this, the open source components as well, whereby you submit your design and it's held on a server and any rival team can access it, which basically means that if you want to design a certain part a certain way, you can invest in doing that, but then it's accessible to all the other teams. Uh, but the, the, this is for non-critical areas of the car. But sometimes that can be something that will unlock if it, the ability to do something with something else by making a little bit of space, saving a little bit of weight, sense of gravity gains. So we've now got these kind of multiple tiers of uh, of componentry in uh, in Formula One cars. It's actually it's it's quite complex the different types that exist now. I think it's quite interesting. So we, obviously, yeah, there are these five new parts. Uh, we've got our open source ones. So all of the teams, I think that's for things like steering wheels and little bits and pieces like that. Teams have to drop them in a little bit of server space and anyone can access them. Uh, we have still have our listed components, which is team things that teams have to design. Standard components, which have perhaps increased. Um, and then there's the still the transferable ones as well so that's the things that the b teams will use like gearboxes uh and various other bits and pieces like that and then there's all these prescribed components because because these d- regulations have been defined in a certain manner and there is an effect that f1 wants to see it wants a certain output therefore everybody's input has got to be the same because that's that's how it retains the effect really of these cars that are meant to race closer together so there there are a lot more tight boxes there are a lot more things that teams have to do themselves um i think it's quite interesting um i can't wait to see how that one plays out especially with will the open source parts open up a little bit um i I think that's quite good for especially if you've got the same engine supplier and things like that other teams aren't necessarily going to want to use certain parts but another team might if you have the same engine so i think a little bit of cross-pollination in that regard isn't too much of a bad thing yeah i think it's uh it's quite a pragmatic solution i think because obviously the, the open source suggestion came in in reaction to having more uh, standardized components which of course will end up being heavier and put the minimum weight up even more so uh, i think that's a, a pragmatic uh, a pragmatic solution um there's a few kind of things in the sporting regs that re- that also relate to, to to the cars obviously there's greater restrictions on things like dyno hours for the engine greater reductions uh to the wind tunnel and cfd use obviously currently there's a formula that dictates your wind tunnel and cfd uh uh, development use for uh, for testing aero ideas so there's a big control there in terms of how much work you can do that kind of exists within the within the cost cap so not only cost cap but you're also further capped in terms of how much actual testing you can effectively do which uh, again is there to to try and ensure that the bigger teams don't have such a big advantage and that that seems sensible to a point although you could argue that with a cost cap why do you need to have the restrictions on that? Surely within a, you have a cost cap and then allow more flexibility for that sort of thing. And if you want to do more wind tunnel work, you, you can if you want. I think so. Um, I think it's, it's no bad thing because you do have the maximum restriction, but then you do wonder how much the smaller teams do anyway in that regard. I'm sure they perhaps do less. Um, so for the 2021, um, wind tunnel runs are restricted to 400 um, and then that will drop down to 320 in following years. CFD restrictions have been tightened up, so teams have a bit less to work with. So there's a lot there, um, a lot for the teams to, again, get their heads around, especially with all of these new aero components. Um, they will have to do more with less, uh, if you like. So that's quite an interesting one. Um, I do agree. We we should say on the uh, on the wind tunnel thing, you know that figure four hundred runs. You know it wasn't that long ago. You only need to go back kind of just over ten years to points where you'd have teams that would have two wind tunnels running in shifts. So 
four four like four hundred runs. That's that's not a lot considering uh, how much how much they used to do. So that, that this this is uh, a, a very very big yeah step. absolutely. And then you've got the knock on effect of that is that you're not making so many different parts, not making so many different models. So they that's the knock on effect of that is reduced costs in the wind tunnel. Um, you're not having to make as many different bespoke parts and bits and pieces. I do agree that because of the cost cap, you can perhaps try to open that up and make it more free. But then, what what cost? How much does a wind tunnel cost to run? Uh, how much does a CFD simulation cost? That kind of thing. What price do you put on that? And if the FIA and Formula One are going to be very very stringent on this cost cap and auditing every single expenditure that all each and every team makes, then it's very, very difficult to value that, I think. So I do understand the need for that. Um, obviously, if teams can't afford to do 400, then they don't have to and they can put the money elsewhere. But I, 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 get, the, I get the point of that. I do understand it. <laughs> yeah, I think it's a fairly logical move. Now, there are a few changes to the race weekend in terms of uh, Park now starts in FP3 what you scrutineer at the start of the weekend and we should say actually as part of this they're trying to make the weekend slightly more condensed so all the things that normally happen on a Thursday including media time will all be condensed into sort of Friday morning and then there'll be a couple of sessions uh, probably a little bit shorter than the current two 90 minute ones in the afternoon on Friday so they're just trying to condense things because of course they're trying to compensate for the fact they have put provision to go up to as many as 25 races and in fact there is a desire to hit that 25 race figure because that means more income for Formula One and obviously wants to make more money so 25 is certainly an objective if they can get enough uh, enough customers so there's, there's also this thing about the reference specification that will be created at the start of the weekend when it's scrutineered which again seems like quite a good move to stop all this sort of shipping in of of, of late manufactured parts that uh, that's been going on for some time yeah um i think that's definitely definitely a good thing um you because part verme has been has been moved um you now and because of the changes to scrutineering you do now have to cement what you're going to run with before you take it to scrutineering you can then do test parts on friday but then you can't run them in the race so you do it's more of a gamble if you have a new part and you're not really sure about it do you gamble and put it in scrutineering and see what happens or do you run it in friday and then maybe save it once you've looked at the data for the next one so I think that adds a little bit more jeopardy uh, to running an upgrade rather than, you know, the relatively low risk, oh, we'll run it in practice. If it works, we'll bung it on. If not, we won't. Um, the changes to the weekend are definitely a good thing. Um, I, I don't think four days were necessarily needed. Practice sessions do need to be shorter to increase that sort of unpredictability. Um, because how many times have we seen, I don't know, practice being rained off or there being a very lengthy red flag period and therefore teams don't have as much time to prepare for the race and run through endless simulations of qualifying in the race. They don't have the scope to do that. So with short practice sessions, they have to tick off what they want to do, what comes first and what perhaps is a little bit more optional. Now, I, that can only be a good thing, I think. I think personally, I would just drop a practice session. Um, you only need one or two in reality um one for qualifying sims one for race sims something like that that works uh and i think yeah condensing the weekend is definitely a good thing especially if they're they insist on making the calendar 25 races which i i personally don't particularly like yeah i think there's a point where you you achieve oversaturation i think even even 21 races is perhaps pushing that point where you're asking too much of the audience but uh, equally others will tell you that uh, more of what they like is good and more is indeed more now the, the financial regulations and the cost cap um let's give a quick summary of that the top line figure is the f1 team you'll be limited to spending 175 million dollars per year now that's based on a 21 race season so if there's more races up to the maximum of 25 you get an extra 1 million dollars per race if it goes below 21 then you get a million dollars knocked off so 
if it's a 25 race season in 2021, your budget cap is, uh, your cost cap is 179 million because it's plus four races. And there's various mechanisms and exchange rates, etc. If you look through the financial regs, they've got uh, they've got exchange rates for for pounds, for euros, and for for Swiss francs, of course, with the Alfa Romeo team being based in Switzerland. So it, it all kind of uh, evens up. But dollars is the is the main uh, is the main currency now. That basically covers all of your F1 activities, but there's, there's a there's a long list of things that are exempt from it, which uh, I'll, I'll just give a quick summary of the most important ones. So marketing is exempted. Drivers and test drivers are, are exempted. There's a few high-paid individuals in the team that are, uh, are not counted. Things like heritage activities, various taxes, non-F1 activities aren't included, obviously. And then there's human resources costs, finance and legal activities, property costs, flight and hotel costs, fees paid to the commercial rights holder, the super license costs, and some uh, some costs relating to validating uh, new spec fuels and uh, and, and oils, so obviously to keep the uh, the fuel and lubricant partners uh, happy. Uh, so there's there's various kind of non-performance things that are exempted from it. But what this does is this puts a tight control over how big your team can be and how much you can do in terms of the actual business of doing work. And there, there's also mechanisms in the rules saying that, obviously, the reporting group is your F1 team. But if you're, let's say, Mercedes, if there's any other part of the company that does any work on your behalf that feeds into it, that gets included as well. And there has to be a, a dollar amount put on those services. So the idea is that this this stops you kind of losing costs in other parts of companies if you're a if you're a bigger company or a bigger group, so it's quite a th- it's quite a thorough and in depth document. There's a lot of uh, technical bits in there that uh, that cover that it works, but it's been th- it's been well put together. There's some pretty serious penalties, as Ross Braun said in the presentation. This has teeth. He compared it to the resource restriction agreement of uh, a decade or so ago, which basically wasn't in the end worth the paper it was printed on because people just bust it in the end uh, and just went over it. But now this this is a hard line. If you breach it, there's a sliding scale of penalties which can go all the way up to exclusion, basically. So they're going very, very hard with this and they're working with Deloitte, the accountancy company, to provide outside support. There's going to be a soft introduction in 2020 where teams are invited to submit the financial data as kind of a test case so they can get the mechanisms up and running and they've they've created some bodies as well that will, that will monitor all this. So there's a... Um, it's what's called a cost cap administration, and then there's a cost cap adjudication panel if anything needs to be looked at. So it's it's quite a comprehensive framework, uh, but it does seem that a cost cap is the most logical way to stop the runaway spending, doesn't it? So if this document works as planned, and if if you look online, you'll be able to find it. It's uh, it's very very uh, in depth, and there's 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 plenty there. If it works, then this could be a great force for good in terms of leveling the playing field yeah absolutely and it's been such a long time coming as well uh, <laughs> I remember back in 2010 when they were trying to or two, 2009 rather when they were trying to get new teams in for 2010 and they were all working on the proviso that they would be restricted to was it 40 million dollars a year or 40 million pounds a year um, I don't remember the dominate denomination yeah yeah there was there was a budget cap for teams that signed up for it. the idea was it was kind of two tier so there was a budget cap originally teams that signed up to the budget cap got certain extra technical benefits so you could have movable aero that kind of thing so this was to keep this is to keep everyone happy you can encourage new teams in and you could uh, keep the teams that want to spend big happy but of course what we have to say is that that didn't happen new teams committed the budget cap didn't happen and none of those new teams are with us today so uh, what does that tell you about that project exactly and it was just the rug being pulled from under their feet really this one is a genuine foundation that teams have to now build from and work from. Um, it governs everything, which is absolutely fantastic. But what I wonder is how long until we get our first, you know, huge, large-scale breach of this. Um, you see it all the time in football teams like, I don't know, Manchester City or PSG being pinged for... Uh, breaking financial fair play or whatever and that's there's various investigations going on like that how long before we see a formula one team embroiled in a massive massive 
uh, argument over cost cap and what counts and what doesn't. There will be teams now on the phone to very, very clever accountants thinking, okay, how do we get away with this? What can we do? What can't we do? Um, I might, may sound like I'm being cynical, but that's the nature of Formula One. Well, there are, there are biz- the businesses do this, don't they? You know, there's, there's a reason the phrase creative accounting exists and there are, there are people who exist to kind of minimise the financial penalties for companies and minimise tax, et cetera, et cetera. So there's, there's a new thing to, to, to point out here, particularly when you're dealing with big and complicated companies. You know, it all looks good on paper, but I guess the real test is how easy it is to kind of forensically go through everything and understand if a manufacturer team has been sneakily using some group somewhere or other to do stuff for example just by example when uh when honda had its team in formula one had its teams it had a the double diffuser idea actually came from an aero group based at honda in japan they were just toying with ideas so how does that show up if that's just a that's just a little group that exists within a wider company etc so it yeah i, I agree that's it's going to be tested isn't it because it's formula one and it's and it's bound to be but uh the the interesting thing is, I mean, I've been extremely skeptical about a cost cap, and Jean Tots actually said a similar thing, the FIA president, but he said he's been he's been convinced by the rigor of the documentation that it's going to work. So let's see. But if you can keep all the teams spending a similar amount of money, uh, or, or at least maximum, because let's face it, $175 million, there's plenty of teams that are operating at below that, but there is an intention to kind of squeeze the budget cap, then, then theoretically the the performance potential is defined by the money and the resource you've got and it does put a greater onus on how clever you can be that's the hope anyway yeah and the thing is we've got these technical restrictions anyway so even if a team is somehow cleverly adding another i don't know couple of tens of millions onto their budgets per year there's only so much you can do anyway with within the bounds of the regulations so even if you can spend more is there, there are diminishing returns in that regard. Um, I, I might sound like I'm being overly optimistic, but I, I've wanted a cost cap for a very long time. I know it's difficult to audit, and I know that it's very, very difficult to put into practice. But if Formula One has found a way and everybody's on board with it, then it can only be a good thing. I'd rather, even if it gets the rules get flaunted a little bit. It's, it's surely better to have one than just not at all, really. Yeah, 100%. It's certainly, certainly something that should be tried. And I think one phrase, I think Ross Braun used it in the presentation, he said they had to save the teams from themselves because part of this is not is not just about making it a level of playing field. It is about ensuring that F1 is sustainable because the teams do all get a significant amount of money. And yeah, it, sh- it should be sustainable. F1 makes enough money. Now, we, we should know, there are a few significant things that are not part of these regulations. Firstly, the commercial agreements will dictate the remuneration to teams, should we say. So currently, we know that Ferrari gets extra money simply for being Ferrari. Uh, we see the the teams that get the Constructors' Championship bonus, such as Mercedes, Red Bull, etc., they get extra money just for what they've achieved in the past. Williams has got a small heritage uh, payment as well. So this will all be redefined. And this the next phase now is getting everybody to sign up for 21 and beyond because, well, it used to be called the Concord Agreement. Really, now it's a series of bilateral agreements between teams and uh, and the commercial rights holder that sign people up. So they need to get teams signed up and worked out, work out that mechanism because that's an important thing about trying to create some, uh, some equality. The other thing is the tyres. Uh, now there's there's been some talk about the Pirelli target letter for 2021, but coming back to where we started, which is the ability to follow closely, etc., a big pa- a big factor in this has been the tyres. They're very very sensitive. The Pirelli tyres, if you start sliding around too much because you've lost downforce, the tyres overheat. There's a lot of tyre management that goes on, and so the tyres, which after all attach the car to the track, so they're pretty important. If they're not right, they could to my mind, potentially undermine a significant part of the impact of these technical regulations. So these two areas, the the, the team payments and the tyres, they're the kind of two missing pieces of the jigsaw that need to be right, or they could really do some damage to, to the objectives of, the, of these rule packages. I think Pirelli is going to have to be, at least in the first couple of years, at least a little bit conservative with 
how it how it formulates its tires, um, they're not going to be able to do what they did in 2011 and 2012 and create something that's extremely high deg. But at the same time, they can't create something that's rock hard and teams can't use. So they're going to have to be play it down the middle, I think, not do anything too complicated. Uh, obviously, they need to do quite a hefty testing program. Uh, we usually when that sort of thing happens teams use mule cars and stuff and it's never anything like the real thing but it's an attempt it's a simulation at least so yeah and especially when it comes to doing 18 inch tires as i said with grand effects um the 18 inch tire is something that pirelli hasn't done before for formula one so this is new ground for them uh, obviously, it will do so for Formula 2 next year, and it's my understanding the Formula 2 teams will have tyre sensors and stuff, and they might be able to give Pirelli enough data, but at the end of the day, they're still different dimensions and still different tyres, and they're going to flex differently um, because they are not as wide as they will be in Formula 1. Uh, there's there's a lot of, lot of variables, a lot of things like flex and tyre stiffness and god knows what tyre science is a real real black art um if you'll pardon the pun so it's it's gonna be something i I hope it doesn't derail the whole thing i really don't um yeah as i say they'll have to just be a little bit conservative in the first couple of years and see how it plays out and if they've got then the data to back it up and say okay we can do x y and z to make this better then I'm sure they'll go for it, but yeah, they'll just have to play a little bit safe in the first couple of years, I think. Yeah, I'd agree with that. And uh, yeah, a lot of onus on Pirelli to, to get things right. And that's something the drivers in particular will be will be lobbying for quite intently. Well, so just, just to wrap it up, your final verdict overall on the 2020 run regs, are they, are they right? Do they go far enough? Do they go too far? What's your kind of mark out of 10 for them, should we say? I'm going to give it a tentative uh, (laughs) 7.7. Very precise. Um, That that happened to be, I've got a laptop in front of me and that happened to be the the key I was looking at at the time. Uh, So there is, I I don't know if there's room for improvement or such, but you you stick with the status quo and we just get the same as what we have now. Formula One has to try something new these seem like the best way of doing it it's still formula one but there's a lot of new things and new things for teams and drivers and engineers can to to get their teeth into uh one or two things uh, i'm not so keen on like you know like the the brake regulations for example uh i think when it comes to things small things like tire warmers they i reckon they should should have been gone but they've decided to keep them there's a few other little niggling bits and pieces that i don't massively love but the the shift of aero the cost cap uh the shorter weekends that that all appeals to me so i think personally let's give it an a i'll give it an a oh very generous yeah i mean i I think they're broadly in the right direction i think they could have gone a bit further in some areas but as ross braun said it is a working progress it's kind of the platform to evolve from so yeah maybe i'll give it i don't know a six and a half seven something like that but i'd like to see a bit more but yeah, not, not not too bad. I think just as a little footnote, um, one thing in the financial regulations that was uh, kind of hit home, the kind of human impact on this with the cost cap, there are going to be probably some job losses because there's a, they're exempted from the cost cap is any cost related to termination, et cetera, of employees, for example. So there, there could be a little bit of a human cost uh, uh, here and there for that, which is obviously uh, not ideal. And when it comes to the, the idea of just slashing team size and that kind of thing we, we do always have to be mindful of that uh, of that cost but at the same time it needs to be sustainable because you want it to be sustainable indefinitely and uh, the majority of jobs to be uh, to continue to exist but yeah it's going to be a huge talking point over the next uh, 18 months it won't be until uh, pre-season testing in 2021 that we'll see these cars so it's it's now all about working towards them and, and what people can do so let's uh, let's hope it works uh, so thanks very much Jake Boxall Leg for your input and also your uh, very precise number rating of the uh, of the regulations. We'll we'll come ba- we'll come back to you in a couple of years and see whether you were whether you were right. But uh, yeah, thanks very much. 
Uh, so do check out autosport.com for all the latest from the world of Formula One and the rest of motorsport. Of course, there's ongoing coverage of 2021 on there. Uh, Autosport magazine out every Thursday and the Autosport podcast available free, usually out every Monday and Thursday. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back soon with another Autosport podcast. Music is 6am by Trilo, written by Marcus Simmons. See soundcloud.com forward slash Trilo Music. redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. This is it. This is the year. Enough dreaming about growing my business online. It's time to get serious about selling. In my style. As big as I want to grow. Because there's nothing I can't do. It's time to get Shopify and take my business to the next level. Whoa, someone's ready to take on the new year. Oh, oh, I thought I was talking to myself there. But heck yeah, 2023 is my year. That's not your average resolution. That's a revolution. It's It's a a new year's revolution. revolution. Start selling with Shopify to join the commerce platform revolutionizing millions of businesses worldwide. Packed with industry-leading tools ready to ignite your growth, Shopify gives you complete control over your business and your brand. From templates that make site design simple to customizations that let you grow at your pace, this is possibility powered by Shopify. Sign up for a free trial at shopify.com slash free22. That's shopify.com slash free22. Go to shopify.com to start your New Year's revolution today. Social Podcast Network. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.